0: science story, huh? Is NYU scientist? I, it's I felt it. I, I, right. right. I was so And I just happy. thought, well, I
1: figured it, out. Wow. I feel it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side.
0: Hi, hey everyone. I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true stories of how science has affected people's lives. This week's story is from Amy Cuddy. The story was recorded in May 2013 at the Bell House in Brooklyn as part of our three-year anniversary celebration. Our four-year anniversary is coming up. Head to storycollider.org for details.
1: When I went to college, I I knew I was smart. It was pretty much the only thing that I knew about anything. But I, 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 I felt like that was a safe thing, that it was fixed, that if I ever needed it, I could lean on it. Um, I wasn't particularly driven. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I was totally okay with that, because I felt like I would somehow you know, meander along and bump into it and it would work out, because I would always be smart and that would be okay. I mean, I was really just a typical I think, a typical college kid. I, I went to a state school. I wasn't fancy. You know, I worked um, low-wage jobs. I worked as a roller skating waitress for a while. Uh, I, lived, um, I lived a summer, the summer that I turned 19, I lived in, a, in squalor in a house that probably should have been condemned at the Jersey Shore. Um, I lived with my friend from college, Blair, and, uh, and the guys who ran the airbrush t-shirt stand at the boardwalk. It was awesome. <laughs> And I mean, we were like cool. And uh, and and Blair and I worked at the movie theater. And We actually lived on the popcorn that we would bring home in a garbage bag at the end of the night. And we actually had a room that was the popcorn room in this this condemned house. And uh, it was awesome. And I uh, and and I I actually left. And um, my dad is here. And he didn't know this story until an hour ago. Uh, but I left in the middle of that summer before I turned 19. And um, I, I hitchhiked to Indiana to follow the, the dead. And I was a deadhead. And I, this, is what, this, was, this is what's so great about this image. So I, I left. I was like, Blair, don't tell my parents if they call. There was no phone, so you know, not going to happen anyway. But I, I went to hitchhike. And I was like, you know, I went to the edge of Ocean City. That's where we were, Ocean City, which was dry, by the way. And I ha- this is what I had with me, like, cut off overalls that I had gotten at the Goodwill. And, um, and a backpack, a Jansport backpack. And I had sewn a dancing bear onto the back of it, and it had my initials on it, because it was in, from high school. So that's what I went to follow the Grateful Dead in. You know, so that was, that, was, that was when I was you know, turning 19. That was before, between my freshman and sophomore years of college. All right, so fast forward about seven months, um, and I wake up in a brain injury rehab ward in a hospital, in a bed, and I look around, and my mom's there, and um, there are cards everywhere and flowers, and the first thing I remember is this whiteboard, and my friends had drawn like message, cute messages and like little pictures on it, and I was just so confused, and also my dad told me earlier tonight that he had also been there, but I completely had forgotten about that. So I, um, I, I was just, um, I was agitated, I was anxious. I mean, my startled response was just off the charts. Um, I, I didn't know what had happened at all. Um, the last thing that I had remembered before that was driving from Missoula, Montana, to Boulder, Colorado, which is where I went to school, and we left in the early evening. It was around 6. We were trying to get back for morning classes, which was just stupid. I was with two of my friends. And we had this whole plan where we were going to have shifts. And you know, one of us would drive the first third, second third, third third. And uh, the, another person would stay awake to keep the driver awake. And then the other person would sleep in the back. And it was a Jeep Cherokee, so you could put the seats down. And one of us would sleep in a sleeping bag. So I drove my shift. Um, I then was the active passenger. And it was a really nice memory, um, really peaceful. I loved these people that I was with. And then I went to sleep. And, and so then I woke up in this, in this, in this head injury rehab ward. Um, and I found out what I learned about what had happened was this. After I fell asleep, my friend who got the worst shift in the middle of the night um, was driving. and. It was in the middle of Wyoming. And I don't know who's from the West, but you drive really fast in the middle of, the, of Wyoming in the middle of the night. And uh, the other friend had fallen asleep, not surprisingly. You know, it was really late. And she, the, the driver fell asleep. And she veered off the road. And she hit the rumble strip. And the rumble strip woke her up. And she over-rotated. She over-corrected. And she rolled the car three and a half times. And we landed on the roof of the car and um, amazingly, the two people in the front seats were in seat belts, and they were just hanging upside down and one of them cut his hand and that, that was it. They, they, they were, were fine physically. I was in the sleeping bag and got thrown out sideways um, beyond where the car landed. The sleeping bag actually probably helped me. Um, and I was asleep and that probably helped me. But uh, when I woke up, I—I I had uh, the, what was not in the sleeping bag was, you know, had been like abraded by the highway, and I lost a pretty big chunk of my scalp, which has been repaired over many years. Um, so, although when I woke up, it wasn't there, and I was like, "What is going on up here?" Um, so, you know, that—that was—that was pretty pretty traumatic for my friends, who, by the way, I'm still very good friends with. Um, my friend who was driving, she after the, they were very disoriented, obviously after flipping, and and they got out of their seatbelts and they got out of the car, and um, and because I had skidded, my head was bleeding profusely, and I was obviously totally unconscious, and I was in the middle of the highway in the middle of Wyoming, and it was like a scene out of a David Lynch movie, you know, and uh, and they were so disoriented that they thought I was dead. And there were no cell phones, so they waited at three in the morning until a trucker came along and called an ambulance. So that's what happened. And my friend, by the way, who drove, um, even though you know she knows that I'm doing well, she says she still thinks about that every day. You know, it's really like that kind of situation isn't just um, it, it doesn't just injure the the person who's obviously injured. It all the it injures all the people that are involved, even though it was a single car accident. So there I am in the hospital. I had been withdrawn from college. And the doctors come in, they say that, that um, they say you've had a diffuse axonal injury. And this was in the early 90s. Um, and I didn't know what that meant. Um, they called it a closed head injury. Uh, I had fractured my skull, but nothing had entered my, my brain. It basically means a diffuse axonal injury or a closed head injury is when nothing enters the brain. You haven't had a stroke, so it's not localized. So there's no. They're not going to say, well, it's it's your motor area, so you're going to have trouble moving, or it's your, you know, it's your speech area, so you're going to have trouble producing speech or processing speech. They just don't know, you know, they don't know. And really, they almost are ready to send you home when your external wounds are healed, even though you are completely shaken to the core. So this is what the, this is the prognosis. Uh, and and the thing is, many people have had. Uh, Brain injuries, closed head injuries. So, some of you will probably relate to this, but they came in and they said, um, and it's funny because I teach now my MBA students empathy, and I use people from Boston Children's Hospital who teach physicians empathy. These people had not yet taken that course because the <laughs> doctor came in and said, um, So, you are probably not going to finish college, so that's okay because you're going to be high functioning. And just FYI, in case any of you are physicians, we don't like that term. Like high functioning is not satisfying to somebody who just been you know told oh, your whole life is going to be different. So they said, find something else to do. Uh, you know, it's going to be okay. Uh, just you'll just you'll find something else to do. Uh, I had so many neuropsychological tests, so much cognitive. There's, I mean, so many things happening. I remember them taking me to the grocery store to teach me how to shop for groceries again. And uh, anyway, I, t- I took you know, many days of neuropsych tests, and I got this full long report. It was like 25 pages long. I didn't know what neuropsych tests they had given me, but I looked through it, and uh, I noticed one page, which was IQ. And now, I don't want to... I'm not saying anything about the validity of the IQ test or whether or not it's a good predictor of who does well in life. What I am saying is that People identify with it. It's, it's quantifiable, right? It's this score that you attach to. They never expl- they just sent me that 25 page report with no explanation, but I looked through it and I saw that my IQ had dropped by 30 points. And that is, for the stats nerds, two standard deviations. It's massive. And I knew this because I was in the gifted program as a kid. <laughs> And I knew my IQ. In fact, I remembered the letter that they sent home to my parents with the number circled. I remembered exactly what it looked like. And so I knew how big a drop that was. But here's the, the one, part of the craziness of head injury in doctors is that they, they, they sort of exploit the fact that you're head injured and they don't tell you much. You know, they, you sort of experience the same discrimination that older people experience which is that they don't give you full information. So nobody really explained it to me. I just saw that. And I was pretty destroyed by that. So basically the doctors were telling me you're not you're not smart anymore, you know? And that was a core part of my identity. And it was as I said it was something that I thought was fixed that could never change. So there was that. Then my friends, my closest friends tell me, you're not really the same person anymore. And that summer when I went home, so that was, the accident was in February, I went home for the summer, and my two best friends from high school, who were people that I was really close with, these were special friendships, like these are the kinds of friendships that I hope my son has. These were people who saw me, they knew me, they knew me as well as I knew myself at least, and I think that it was such a time of confusion that I, the fact that I still had these two girls really made me feel, it gave me a sense of safety. And one night, and I don't know why, I don't know what led to this, one of them um, said to me, um, we can't be friends with you anymore. You're just, you're really, really different, and we don't know you anymore. We don't understand you. And I talked to the other friend, and she agrees. The other friend wasn't there. It was the worst, most devastating breakup of my life. I mean, it was horrible. I, w- I was crushed by it. And I thought, if they don't know me, and I don't know myself, and they can't tell me what, why I'm different or how I'm different, what am I going to do? And I, I remember it was a flashball memory for me. I remember driving home in the rain, sobbing, you know, thinking, it's, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I spent the next couple of years, next year probably, Really confused. I, I don't remember a lot of things. And in fact, to try to piece things together again, I would do this thing where I would say to my friends, Hey, remember when this happened? And they'd be like, Oh, yeah, that was so great. I'd be like, Yeah, what did I say again? You know, so I would sort of be prying for information. Like I'd be trying to get information about who I was by try, fake reminiscing with my friends. So I, I had that going on. I was miserable. I was angry. I was frustrated. I had no answers. Um, I tried to go back to school, and I could not process spoken information. And it was like gobbledygook. Like, I I would be in class, and it made no sense to me, which made me more frustrated. And I was failing out, so I had to quit. So that was the first time I went back. I was, what I was really trying to do, you know, not understanding what was wrong with me or what was different, except that my doctors told me I was different, my friends told me I was different, and I knew that I was different, and I felt hollow, and I, trying to hold on to who I was was like, um, trying to hold water in your hands. It just didn't make any sense to me. But what I was doing, I think, was, I was trying to pass, I was passing, and I was talking to a friend of mine who was telling me about how he tried to pass as straight in high school. And he said, I never did it well, I would sort of like fake this behavior, but I never did it well because I didn't understand what it felt like to be straight. And I felt like I was trying to pass as my old self, but I didn't understand what it felt like to be my former self. So I couldn't possibly do it well, you know, and, and I was just really destroyed by this idea that I had lost. Um, this core part of my identity. Core parts of my identity, not just being smart, but my friends who I love telling me you're different and we don't want to be with you anymore. I I really struggled with anxiety. Um, I kept trying to go back. And I think I kept trying to go back because honestly, and I'm not proud of this, but I can't take no for an answer. And if somebody tells me I can't have something, You know, somebody says, oh, you're not going back to college. I'm like, oh, yeah, I am going back to college. So I kept trying and trying, even if I shouldn't have gone back to college. I tried again. It finally took the the third time. So the third time I went back, it stuck. I was studying circles around everybody else. I felt like a total imposter. I felt like an imposter not just at school, but I felt like an imposter in my own body. I didn't feel like I deserved to be there. and it, it part but part of why it stuck that time was because I found something that I wanted to study. I wanted to study head injury because I realized after this experience, you know, that we knew so little about this tiny, tiny, tiny amount about closed head injury. And for some reason it just wasn't it wasn't as maybe it wasn't as sexy as other kinds of head injury, or maybe it was just so hard to um, to image you know, diffuse axonal injury that people weren't studying it, but I really became motivated to study it. It turned out my brother also had had a really serious head injury. Before I did, he fell off a cliff skiing. And he was was, uh, discharged from the hospital when his wounds were healed. No, he had no follow-up therapy at all. So I knew that this was a problem. And there I was in Boulder at this top head injury rehab hospital because of all the skiing and climbing accidents. So if they didn't have an answer there, I really didn't know who had an answer? So I started working in this head injury lab, studying uh, studying mild brain trauma. And what I was looking at was the effect of mild brain trauma on prospective memory, and that is remembering to remember. So remembering to come to an appointment down the road, you know, something like that. I worked in there for a year. and. The, the faculty member that took me, the professor who took me in, um, I really think he took me in because he found me fascinating because I was brain injured and I think he thought I had a lot of chutzpah, you know. So he was like, all right, you're interesting. He was very direct. He was from New York. It, you know, he was not like a typical sort of laid-back Coloradan. And I, and I was always asking people who I thought might know, tell me more about head injury. I want to understand it. I want to understand it. And he said to me, look, Amy, this is... Let me explain it to you in the simplest way, a diffuse axonal injury. He said, um, your brain's an onion. And let me just say here that I'm going to offend neurologists and neuroscientists by simplifying this, so apologies. He said, imagine that your brain's an onion and every layer or part is a different density. So when there is an acceleration force that's great enough, all of those parts are moving at different speeds against each other. And what's happening is that those neural fibers, those axons that are connecting all those parts of your brain from the primitive parts to the most evolved parts, are dying. All of those axons died. So you've experienced a little death all over your brain. And so what that means is that you don't change in one way. Your affect changes. Your intelligence changes. your Um, behavior changes, your movement changes, your personality changes, everything changes a little bit. And that is why we can't tell you this is what you should expect. This is what's going to happen. And that was a huge relief to me and also really unsettling at the same time, you know? I mean, what? (laughs) I'm never going to get the answers that I want to get. I ended up... Leaving the lab, not not because I didn't like working with this person, but I realized this was in the mid '90s that it wasn't going anywhere. That area just still had no momentum. No one seemed to care. It wasn't it wasn't interesting enough, and I wasn't getting the answers that I wanted to get. So you know, I ended up leaving and and, and going into another another area of psychology. Um, and. I don't know, you know, when people say, "Well, what what is different about you now?" The the craziness of head injury part of it is that I don't know because I can't remember. You know, I just don't know what was what I was like before. I only know what I am like now. I don't know how I ended up at Harvard. It was never on the radar for me ever. And I ended up at Harvard studying how people can become their aspirational selves. Like, how can you become a self that you're not now? And um, I, re- I realized that, and it's funny, because like part of it is just giving these talks. And you know th- this was really hard, thinking about this and having to process this and go over this, and even just talking to my dad about it, and um, that the hardest breakup wasn't with my best friends. What happened was that I realized I had a moment Where I realized that I had to break up with my past self, that I was never gonna be that person again, and that we weren't communicating well anymore, you know? It's like in a relationship when you, it's not terrible, like you're kind of comfortable, but you don't know each other anymore, you're drifting apart, and you just know that you're never going to know each other again, you're never going to come back together again, and you have to let it go. I had to let it go, and I felt guilty. I felt ashamed. I felt um, it was really hard. I felt like I was dishonoring my true self, this idea of the true self, that the true self was the person I was before the accident, and I could no longer ever again be my true self. But I had to break up with myself, and that's what I did. And I, you know, when you break up with someone in that situation, um, you... You don't know what's out there. Like you don't know if you're going to meet another companion. You just you're taking a leap of faith, and that is that is what I had to do. And I think that um, if I had not been able to make that break, and that break was really hard for me to make, nothing would have happened. Thank you.
0: That was. Amy Cuddy. Amy is a social psychologist and Harvard Business School associate professor who studies how snap judgments and nonverbal behavior affect people from the classroom to the boardroom. Her fascinating work on power posing reveals how your physical posture affects not only how others see you, but also how you see yourself, your own hormone levels, and your performance and important life outcomes. Amy's work has been featured on CNN, MSNBC, The New York Times, The Financial Times, Scientific American Mind, The Wall Street Journal, and even as the theme of a Dilbert comic strip. Her TED Talk is now the second most viewed of all time. She is also a classically trained and still practicing ballet dancer, which informs her research on nonverbal communication. For more science stories, take a look at StoryCollider.org, where you have archives of the podcast and upcoming events. Also, we depend on listeners like you for our support. If you're able, please consider donating. StoryCollider.org slash donate. We also have shows coming up in Queens, Brooklyn, London, and Boston. Head to StoryCollider.org for dates and times. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, and Ari Daniel. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Bell House for hosting the show, and to the world, for sometimes... Being okay with change. Thanks for listening. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No.